Well, good morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Colossians. If you would, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 will be our text today. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Last week we saw Paul describe our glorious Savior in verses 15 through 20. Today, Paul will turn to the glories of our salvation. But in order to see the glories of salvation, <laughs> we must first understand the depths of sin. And that's what we're going to see at the beginning of our text, and it'll turn to how Jesus has saved us from that wretched state. Colossians 1, verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and in which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul starts off after this great description of who Jesus is and turns to verse 21 and explains, before Jesus, you're not a good person doing good things. It's just okay. Now he says, and we'll look at our first point here, that we were fighting against Christ. That's our first point, that you're fighting against the Holy Lord. And we see this in in verse 21, this first word, that we were separated. And you once who were alienated. This is your past. What does it mean to be alienated? What does this word even mean? It means to be estranged or to be cut off from fellowship with. You were cut off from the Savior. You've been estranged. You've been separated from Him. Before one comes to know Christ, that's their state. That was my state. That was my status. Sin destroys that relationship with God, and that's where this starts. So you go back to, many of you know the old Sunday school story of Genesis 1. What does God do? He creates the world. He creates man and woman in his image. And he says at the end of every day of creation, and it was good. It was good. Things are good. Then we get to chapter 3. All of a sudden things aren't good anymore because they don't want to follow the one rule that God has asked them to just don't touch that tree. That one? Don't touch that one. That one. And in your human nature, what do you want to do? Speed limit's 55. Five over. It's not that bad. Tell a child, don't touch that. Anything else in the house, free to touch and play with. Don't touch that. And what are they first drawn to? Why? Aren't children innately good? Says nobody working in nursery. 
ever? Ever steal? Ever kill? Nah, see, I haven't killed anybody. Haven't you? According to who? Well, I, I've not killed anybody, Pastor. I, 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 what did Jesus say about murder? You kill somebody, but if you hate them in your heart, it's the same thing. Well, I haven't committed adultery, but if you lust after another person in that same, Jesus said, it's in your heart. He sees your heart. He knows you inside and out. There's nothing hidden from God. Just because you maybe didn't act on that does not mean that you are not a sinful being. Why did you even think that in the first place? Because out of the heart, out of the heart of men, it's not what comes into your body that makes you evil. It's what comes out of you because it's in you. When you squeeze in orange, what comes out? Orange juice. When you are squeezed, friend, what comes out? Pure thoughts, pure words, a holy devotion to a holy God. Apart from Christ, we are estranged. We are alienated. One author said, we deceive ourselves if we imagine that human apathy is the problem. And no, deep down, the enmity which resists the claims of God. Fallen man is not therefore good at heart. If Jesus is to be believed, evil deeds are the inevitable results of an evil heart. We're fooling ourselves if we think that we are innately good. And I've mentioned this before, put two, child, two, two toddlers in one room with one toy. Put two elementary kids in the same room with one piece of cake. Put two teenagers in the room that have the same crush. Put two adults in one room with their boss and there's one job promotion on the line. And just watch. Watch what happens. Humanity at its best. Both men offer the job position, turned it down. I don't want it. The other one deserves it more than me. Don't give us the raise. Is that not what you think would happen? Because eventually me, 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 me is going to come out. We naturally love ourselves. We do not naturally love God. Therein lies our problem. You have to wonder, don't you, with these descriptions, separated, antagonistic, and evil, why on earth would God love us? We, we, we sang, you see the depths of my heart, and you love me the same. You are amazing, God. Why, why would then he love us? And that's what Paul is trying to help you see. To see the depths of the darkness also allows you to see the brightness of the light. We tend to think of our sin like we think of breaking laws here in the state. So if I jaywalk, you know, officer, you know, I jaywalked, okay? I didn't kill anybody. Surely I don't need a ticket let alone the death penalty. Put the gun away. I just jaywalked. And we think of sometimes sin like we think of God's law, but like man's law. But God's law is not like man's law. There, are, there is no rank and file to his law. There's no rank and file. It's not this sin 
is 70% worse than that sin. Sin to God is in one camp. It's in one bank. It's in one file. It's all heinous. Because it rejects him as Lord and it costs him the life of his son. Have you sinned at all? Once? I'm not asking you what sin, how bad you think your sin was. Have you ever sinned? Then you are lumped in with the rest of humanity as being separated from God because of one sin. How many sins did it take to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden? How many? One. Is it because God's an awful tyrant? No, it's because he's holy. Period. He's holy. He can't be around sin. Something has to pay for that sin. Somebody has to pay for that wrong. And we can't pay for it. So who can? How do we go from being separated to reunited? How do we go from being antagonistic to being children of the king? How do we go from doing evil to doing righteous works? Something's going to have to change. Something's going to have to change, and it does. Let me encourage you before we move on that to not make light of your sin. When you make little when you say that your sin is no big deal, even after salvation, when you think that your sin is not that big of a deal, it's just a little thing, then ask yourself the question, what are you saying about Jesus? What do you say about Jesus when you think your sin is no small thing? When it's just, you know, it's, it's, that's not that big, it's not that big of a deal. It was a big deal to Jesus. How do you know it was a big deal to Jesus? He died. He died for your little sin. Your little sin cost him his life. There is no little sin. There is sin. And then there is holiness. You, we cannot make light of sin because, so I encourage you, make much of sin. Make much of sin. See sin as as awful as you can. Because when you make much of sin, you make much of the Savior. When you make little of sin, you make little of the Savior. I guess I kind of needed it. No. You were dead in our trespasses in sins. But God. But God. See your sin as it is. Repugnant to a holy God. It's separated you from Him. It's made you His enemy and sin has corrupted you, and this is why you do evil deeds. And yet God sees the depths of our hearts, and he loves us the same. So how do we go from this, separate antagonistic and evil, to being a holy people, to being reunited with our king, to being doing righteous things? We have to first be reconciled, and that's our next point here, reconciled by Christ. And you can have peace with God. Look at verse 22. He has now, even though you were this, even though you were that bad, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We were at war with God, and now we've been reconciled. I mentioned last week to reconcile is to make the worst of enemies the best of friends. To reconcile is to make the worst of enemies the best of friends. One 
commentator said of this, the wondrous work of Christ has solved the tragic situation of the Colossians' godless past. Due to their total depravity, the people of this world could not traverse the enmity gap between themselves and God. Right? They, I, they couldn't cross it. I can't get to where you are, God. So a loving, merciful God sent his son to bridge the gap for us through his sacrificial death on the cross. By placing our sins under his blood, Christ made atonement. And the result was reconciliation. One more thing to note about this is, is how did Jesus accomplish this rec reconciliation? In his body of flesh, in his body, he had an actual body. This is one of the things that we'll see possibly that Paul's fighting against later, that maybe Jesus didn't have a human body as the, the docetic belief would teach. But in his body, in his body of his flesh by his death, and as you look at that, verse 22, he's reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. And ask yourself the question, what part do you play in this salvation? Okay, look back at verse 22. And, and pull yourself in, what part do I get to play in my salvation? Do you see yourself in there? Do you see yourself doing any sort of activity that brings you into reconciliation with the king? What's the answer? Nothing. That, that's not an answer we like to hear, is it? We don't like to feel helpless. We don't like to feel vulnerable. We don't like to feel like we're the one drowning. Like we're the one that needs the help. Friend, look at me if you're here. If you're living and breathing, you came into this world living and breathing, you need help from the Lord. Because when you came into this world, you were opposed to Him. But Jesus is sweet enough and kind enough to go, I'll save you, and I don't expect you to do anything. You know why He doesn't expect you to do anything? You can't do it. You can't pay for your sin. There's nothing you can do. How does the rapist repay the one that he rapes? Does serving time take away that crime? Does that make the lady feel any better about her body? And what does he do? What if he spends the rest of his life doing good things? He's still done wrong. He's still done wrong. He can't undo it, but Jesus can. Jesus can. Not only Jesus can, Jesus did. And Jesus does. And can take us from being estranged with God and can give us peace with God. You have no part in this. Friend, Jesus died for your strength, for your sin. Even though you were strange and you were hostile, when he saw the depths of your heart, he chose, I will love you the same. Why? Because I am an amazing God. That's why. Where we would think we would push people away. We don't want them to be like that. God says, I will bring you in. And I will make you like myself. Jesus not only gives us peace with him, he also presents us to the Father. In the next point, he presents us to God. Look at verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him. This verse has great imagery in here. One, there's a sense of imagery of the courtroom where Jesus takes us to the Father, the judge, 
And through former enemies, though former enemies, Jesus presents us as innocent before the judge. We are now blameless. But there's also great Old Testament imagery in here. Old Testament imagery of that of a sacrifice, especially if you think of the book Leviticus, which I spoke on a little bit ago. If something was defiled or unclean, what had to happen in order for it to become clean? We saw in the book of Leviticus a, a sacrifice. Something had to die. Something had to pay the penalty of something going from clean to unclean or for it to go from unclean to clean. Something had to pay. There was a cost to this. And think of even in inanimate objects, like Leviticus 14 talks about the house and the house becoming unclean through mold or mildew that would have affected the health of the person. And they, they ask a priest to come and inspect the house in Leviticus 14 and they, and we figure out, okay, yeah, there is mold and mildew. We want to make sure you're safe. You need to get out of the house. We're going to try to clean it. And then the priest would come back and inspect it. And if it hadn't spread, they're like, all right, you're fine. It's, it's not like this is bad mold. Like some of you might do this in your house with remediation of like black mold, right? For the safety of your children, you're going to pull them out, have somebody come in and take care of this. So in that sense, well, your house is unclean. By you entering in that, you became unclean. Well, how would they become clean again? What would have to take place in the book of Leviticus? A sacrifice. Now, a question, if you've read through the book of Leviticus, who pays for the sacrifice? The priest or the person? Every time, it's the person. Out of your own pocket, you didn't put mildew in your house, but all of a sudden mildew, again, this inanimate object. Mildew, mold goes in, it's going, my house is unclean. Man, I don't know, come on, man. And now I, gotta, now I gotta pay for this and the sacrifice, and the sacrifice has to be made in order to make this clean. If you can get that idea for an inanimate object in Leviticus. Now fast forward to your soul here in Colossians and recognize what has transpired and what has what's changed. Because you were unclean, right? And now he presents you as clean. It's as, if he, it's as if he brings you through the tabernacle or through the temple and presents you to the Holy of Holies as now clean. But what has to happen before you can be presented as clean? What has to happen? A sacrifice. Who pays for the sacrifice, you or our great high priest? Who pays for it? The great high priest. You can't. You can't pay for this one. No, I, I got, no. Friend, it's not money. That won't work here. Your life won't even work here. I, I have to pay this one. I did pay that one. Come. You are clean. He goes from the Savior who becomes our, sacrifi our sacrifice, our substitutionary atonement we talked about last week. I will take your place. And he dies on the cross and he rises again, defeats death, hell, and sin and then becomes our great high priest who then takes those he died for and he brings them to the Father and says, you see what I have done? The unclean has become clean. The alienated, the estranged have become one with us. Those that were enemies, Father, I've made our friends. Those that have done evil, I've now purged and cleansed them to now go live righteous lives. Go bear much fruit child of the king. 
He's our sacrifice. He's our savior. He's our great high priest. He's the one that paid for the cost and bore it in his own body so that we might live for him. We've been presented to God as holy. Have you looked in the mirror lately? How on earth can you, can I be called holy before God? And you look at this text and you say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You are indescribable. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We've been presented to God. We see lastly, not only are we fighting against Christ, we've been reconciled by Christ, we're also persevering with Christ. Those that know Christ as Lord will persevere until the end. We see this in their yielding faith, in our first point here, yielding faith, verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. This is a key word. Key word in verse 23 is the first word. It's the word if. It's a big if. If you continue. And you may wonder, does this mean that I can lose my salvation? Absolutely not, Christian. Jesus promised he would never leave you. What did he promise you? He would never leave you. He would never forsake you. To claim you can lose your salvation, listen to me, to claim you can lose your salvation is to call Jesus a liar. Do you understand this? To claim you can lose your salvation is to claim Jesus is a liar. That you can do something so great to revoke his promise. What did he promise his children? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never. Romans eleven twenty nine tells us that the gifts and the calling of God, it's irrevocable. It cannot be changed. So then what do you do with this verse? Because, I mean, it kind of seems like, well, let me ask you, encourage you, flip over to Matthew 13. And let's hear from the words of Jesus. And I think he'd help, help you see kind of what's going on here. Matthew 13, look at verses 3 through 8. And some of you might recall this, this parable, the parable of the sower. In Matthew 13, 3, Jesus tells this parable, and in verse 3 he says, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, and where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since there is no depth of soil, but... When the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they were withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and, and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil, produced grain, some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, some thirty. Did you catch the four different soils in this text? Right, there's the path, there's rocky, there's the thorny, and there's the good soil. And so take what we just read from Colossians 23, if you continue steadfast in the faith, and look back at these different soils. Because you look at verse 4, the path was so hard that seed could not grow. Verse 5, the rocky ground, it accepted the seed, right? And, and so it springs up life. You're like, aha, a true believer. Right? When you're looking at it out of the ground, you're like, that's it. We got growth. This is, a, this is aha, this is it. But what happens? Sun comes, and there's no what? No root. 
It shows a sign of life, but underneath, nothing. So it dies. Verse 7, the thorny ground, the, the seed, it seems like it's going to be growing, but it's, it's just going to get choked out by the thorns, by the cares of this world. But then the good soil. We see now true growth. The seed has real roots. And what should you expect from a real seed that has real roots that actually grows? You should expect to see what? Fruit. It has to produce something. And what does this produce? It produces some folds, right? 30, 60, 100. Yeah, it produces. So go back now to Colossians 1.23 and thinking through if indeed you continue steadfast in the faith, those that are true Christians will not fade away like the rocky ground because they have real roots. They're not going to be choked out by the cares of this world because they're in good soil. They have real roots. And what do real Christians do? Produce actual fruit. That's what they do. They produce actual fruit. So listen to me. I, I'm carefully. I don't want to cause anybody here to doubt genuine salvation. But friend, do not deceive yourself. Do not deceive yourself. If there is no fruit, you have some hard questions to ask. Do you not? Like, well, what about case study A, pastor? Somebody came here, you know, 30 years ago. They made a profession. They became a member of our church, and then they're not here anymore. Is that person saved? Thank you for the hypothetical. Like one of the weirdest examples we could give. But it happens. It happens, right? Even at this church, we got members that we still find out about that aren't in our databases, and they're connected to the card. Like, I'm a member of your church. <laughs> uh when I go to? Yeah, back, you know, decades ago. Are you going to church anywhere? No. So what would it behoove me to do? To just say, you're not saved. Or to say the flip side, you must be saved. You, you prayed a prayer, you shook a hand, you must be saved. I encourage you, friend, if you meet anybody like that, pray for their salvation. And treat them as if they were an unbeliever. And how should you treat an unbeliever? You should love them. You should care for them. And you should share the good news of the gospel with them. If perchance, 20 years later, they realize, you know what, I have been wrong. I am a child of the king. Then they will turn and repent. But what friend am I to look at somebody who came in front of this church, who professes the name of Christ, what friend am I to let them go and leave this church for years and say nothing and just to assume to them, you must be right with God, even though you're constantly opposing him. What friend am I to do that? Instead, I should be, brother, I know you claim to be a Christian. You need the Savior. No, I just want to live my own life. That's not what a Christian says. They don't look light at sin. Do we sin still? Yes. But they turn and they repent. A just man falls seven times, but then rises again. 
I'm not trying to get anybody here to doubt your salvation, but if you're here and there is no fruit, I'm not telling you there's no root. I'm telling you, brother, sister, friend, man, woman, I beg you, do some serious soul searching. I cannot know for sure if you're truly a child of the king. But shouldn't you know that? Shouldn't you know that? Shouldn't there be evidence in your life that you are salt, that you are light in a dark and decaying world? I encourage you, please, I, I beg you, don't walk out of here going, I hope so. That's never an acceptable answer when it comes to salvation. Know so. Know so. And you can know that. And Jesus will promise when you accept him as Lord, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you because my gifts and my calling is irrevocable. You come to me, child. Look at me. You will bear fruit. Period. Come. Come. Come to me. Christians also have next, we see they have an unmovable hope. Verse 23, if you can indeed, if indeed you continue steadfast in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The rest of verse 23, Paul gives us a building metaphor. The words stable and steadfast have the idea of a building, a solid foundation, and a solid structure built on above it. Your beliefs, your faith is fixed. It doesn't move. It doesn't shift. Uh, when Rebecca and I were in Guam, most of the houses there were made out of cinder block with rebar and filled with cement because of the crazy typhoons that would go through that area and because of the inordinate amount of earthquakes that they would have. So right before we got to Guam in 03, they had a super typhoon. Pasang Wa came through, had gusts of, gusts of 220 miles an hour. You worry in Florida about 120 mile an hour winds. They're worried about 200 plus mile an hour winds. So they've had earthquakes over 8.0. So when we were there, we had a couple that were in the 6 range. But when that Paul Song Walk came through, the houses that were made out of rebar, so cement, cinder block, rebar, stood firm. 8.0 earthquake, they stood firm. They were made to stand firm. But when Pa Sangwa came through, the stick-built houses destroyed, just leveled, just leveled. A true Christian has unshakable faith. So when that moment comes, when that typhoon, when that earthquake comes into your life, your faith remains. It stands still. If you're here and you claim to be a Christian, but your faith has been shaken, does that mean that you're not saved? No, that's not what that means. It could mean you're wrong. Maybe your faith was misplaced. So, Christian, what should a Christian do when they realize they're wrong? You turn and repent. Turn and repent. Turn and repent. It's when you stop turning and when you stop repenting, that's when the big questions come in. It's when you fall and you don't get back up. Those are when the big questions come in, right? Because a just man 
He's going to fall, but he'll rise again. Turn and repent. So out of all this, we, we look at the greatness of our Savior in verse 15 through 20. The greatness of our salvation starts with recognizing the depths of our sin. So how does that impact us today? Let me ask you a few questions and we'll, we'll let you go. Friend, if you're here, I, I mentioned this before, but have you, have you trusted Christ? Look at, look at me very carefully. Do you know for sure you are a child of the king? Not just that you prayed a prayer, not that you shook somebody's hand. Do you know? There is fruit from your life that can come from only God alone. Do you know this? If you do rejoice, if you're here and you do not, friend, I beg you, I beg you, turn to the king. I don't care if you've been in church 30 years. If you do not know, if there is no fruit, I beg you today, set aside your pride and embrace the greatest gift given to mankind, the Savior. You can do so by just admitting the fact that you sin. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He did come. He did die. He did rise. He did ascend on high. And you just call for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the gifts and the calling of God, they're irrevocable. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you. And it's not because you're great. It's because he is. Remember, you were estranged. You were antagonistic. You were doing evil. But now God can reconcile you and grant you peace with God and present you to the Father as blameless. If you're here and you claim to be a Christian, let me rephrase that. If you're here and your life is bearing fruit, because that's the same thing. If you're here and your life is bearing fruit for God, let me ask you a few questions. First, do you make little of sin? It was easy to look on the news and to make loads of other people's sin, isn't it? Oh, oh what has this world come to? What has the world come to? Christian, what is in your life? What is in your heart? Is sin not still there? How light? Do you look at sin? What does the world come to? The world's in me. I want it out. But I'm going to keep battling this because we're told we're going to have to keep battling this so we get to see the Savior face to face. We're gonna, every day I wake up and I got to battle again. Lord, help me choose life. Help me not look down as if I can't sin or to look little at sin and going, that, that's obviously could not be in me or my sin's not as bad as Joe Schmel. Our sin costs the Savior his life. Christian, to look at Christ and to look at sin as if it's nothing is to think nothing of the Savior. Why did he die if your sin was so light, such an easy thing? Next, if you're here and you claim to be a Christian, if you're here and you bear fruit as a believer, are there signs that you are persevering or withering? Are there signs that you are persevering or withering away? One commentator said, continuance is the test of reality of their faith. 
like a building set on a sure foundation, erected with strong supports there to remain true to the gospel, to not shift from the fixed ground of their Christian hope. You know, buildings would go up in Guam all the time, and sometimes you'd have people that kind of cheat on materials, cheat on the cement, cheat on the rebar, and guess when you would find that out? When an earthquake or a typhoon came. And then lawsuits started coming. They thought they could get away with it, but all of a sudden you realize this is a faulty foundation. This is a faulty home, and it withered in the storm. Is your faith that, is it persevering, or is it withering? Lastly, fruit-bearing Christian. Let me ask you this. How will your life, how will your life thank your Savior this week? How will your life thank your Savior this week? In what you say, in what you do, in how you live, how will you thank your Savior for taking you from being estranged, antagonistic, and doing evil to now saying, I'm now child of the King. I'm united with Him. I'm now His family. I can now do righteous works. How will you thank your Savior this week by how you live? What's the plan? What's the goal? We have much to give thanks for, do we not? And I know this is a somber, I, mean, I know it's a somber message to hear how bad we are. It's a good message for me to hear. It's a good message for me to be reminded of. Saunders, you're a snake. But God, Saunders, you don't deserve it. But God, may we make much of sin so we can make much of our Savior. May we see dark as dark so we can bask in light. Let's pray.